You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Good morning, church, again. Uh, Please stand up, and we're going to read the Bible reading. Now, the Bible reading today is uh, Psalm 32. And in the Church Bible, CSB version is on page 487. Page 487. So Psalm 32, it says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does the church with iniquity, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. From day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great flood waters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with a bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That is the word of the Lord. Keep standing and we'll read the Apostles' Creed. Should be on the screen. Hey, let's begin just with a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather and to worship you. I pray that we would do so in spirit and truth. I thank you for your grace that's poured out on us fresh, new every morning. Lord, I thank you for this place and for your people and for your word. And we pray for those brothers and sisters around the world right now who don't have a place to meet, uh, don't have a Bible to read. We pray that you would strengthen them now just as you, uh, we trust, going to strengthen us. Help us not to take this time for granted, but to make the most of it by the power of your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if I haven't met you, my name's Jonathan. I'm the pastor here. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, 
Um, I haven't seen you because we've been away, and it was a great time we had uh, on holiday. Uh, we went all over the place and just had a really good, relaxing time. Um, really thankful to Julianne and to Len for coming and preaching in my stead, and for all of our volunteers, without whom none of this happens. So thank you. Thanks for everyone who, um, who put in an extra effort while we were off doing absolutely nothing. That was great. Thank you. Um, you heard Psalm 32. That's where we are today, continuing this journey through the Psalms, receiving them as beautiful, poetic um, songs of faith and uh, the faith that we have and the faith that we want to have. Uh, these are the words of the Psalms to us. And this morning, Psalm 32 is, uh, you'll see in the little superscription there, uh, next to the 32, um, you'll see in italics of David, a mascal, that is part of the scripture, that is God-inspired and useful for us to know. So this tells us that it was of David or written by David, and a mascal means probably it's a it's a word of instruction. It's a teaching poem, a teaching song. So there's something very specific that David wants us to learn as we read this psalm and as we dwell on it this morning. A mascal. You remember at the very beginning of the series, if you were here the first uh, Sunday of the year, I took us through this helpful little key to understanding, very broadly speaking, kind of three different um, types of psalm that are in the book of Psalms. This is Walter Brueggemann, the uh, Old Testament scholar. He, he categorizes them into these three categories of orientation, disorientation, new orientation. So some psalms, like Psalm 1, orientation. It's just, this is the way the world is. Everything is working in harmony. This is God's blessed creation. Then there's disorientation, where the psalmist is suffering. Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? How long will this go on for? Uh, and then uh, the, there are psalms that come through that period of doubt or disorientation into new orientation, recapturing a sense of the way the world ought to be and the way the world functions under God's good rule. And so th that's what this psalm is. This is a psalm of new orientation. And one of the things that David wants to teach you through this psalm of instruction is to how to reorientate or, or give yourself a new orientation in, in such a way that you understand who God is as gracious father and who you are as wayward child. That's, that's having a right orientation, who God is and who you are, and that's where he wants to leave you this morning. And that's my whole, that's my whole purpose in opening up this psalm for you. A lot of scholars believe that the context for this psalm, and it's not clear because he doesn't tell us, but they believe that the context for the psalm is the same context as Psalm 51, which we've preached on a couple of times here in, in this series as well. Um, the, the context of David in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where he, where he, he stuffs it up big time. He completely screws the pooch. As the king the anointed king of Israel, God's chosen people set apart to be an example to them of godliness, he completely falls. He sees Bathsheba, this beautiful young woman, bathing on a rooftop, lusts after her, uh, knows that she is married to a, a guy in his army, Uriah the Hittite, but puts that aside, 
And like all of us do when we pursue temptation and sin, just blocks out all of the knowledge that would save us from ourselves and pursues his lusts. He has armed guards bring her to his bed, essentially raping her. That's how we would describe it in today's um, language. Uh, and she ends up falling pregnant. Uriah, her faithful husband, is off fighting in war. And you see from the introduction to 2 Samuel 11 that that's exactly what David should be doing. It says at the time when kings go to war, yet this king is at home sleeping with someone else's wife. So he's betrayed his nation. He's endangered his army. And now he takes the the faithful soldier, Uriah, and, and he schemes. He schemes. This is what we do when we want to cover up sin. We've got to get very clever, um, like a serpent. We've got to get very clever. And so he brings Uriah back and sends him home to his wife. He thinks if Uriah comes home, he's going to go sleep with his wife, and then the fact that she's pregnant won't be any big deal, and all of this will go away. She'll be too scared to rat on me as the king, and so it'll be fine. But Uriah is too faithful. He's what David should have been. He sleeps on his front doorstep instead of going in to be with his wife. When David says, what are you doing? Why didn't you, you know, the plan was for you to go and sleep with your wife. Wink, wink. He's like, I'm not, there's no way on earth that while my brothers are dying on the battlefield that I'm going to go and sleep with my wife. I'm not going to do it. <sighs> David's plan is foiled. And so like all of us do, he has to escalate. And he goes all the way and has... The commanders of his armies put Uriah back, right out in the, as the, as the uh, KJV, the King James Version says it, to put him in the hottest part of the battle. And then he gets the commanders to withdraw the troops right when everything's about to hit the proverbial fan. And so Uriah gets killed and David's plan comes to fruition. He's raped a young woman, he's murdered a friend. He's betrayed his army. He's endangered his nation. And then in one of the greatest gotcha moments of the whole Bible, I love this, you have months later, you have Nathan, the prophet Nathan, come to King David and he tells him a story. He tells him this story about he says there were two, this is uh, 2 Samuel 12, he says, there were two, two men in a city, and one of the men was very rich, very powerful, very, very well uh, taken care of. He had flocks and flocks and flocks of sheep, which in that day were just signs of wealth, right? He had everything that he could want. And then there was a poor man who had nothing, he, all he had was a single little ewe lamb. And this ewe lamb he, he had raised with his family and it, and it kind of like slept in their bed with them and ate their food and it was precious to them. And then one day this traveler came through town and like a good Jew, he, the, the rich man uh, entertained this traveler and provided hospitality with him, but for him. But instead of taking one of his thousands of lambs and sacrificing it and, and cooking it up for dinner for the traveler, he went to the poor man and took his one little ewe lamb, precious little lamb, and killed it and served it to the traveler. And David hears this and he's righteously indignant. He says, this man must die. And Nathan says, you are that man. Mic, mic drop moment. 
You are that man. And David says the most obvious thing in the entire history of the world is like, I've sinned. I've sinned against God. And a lot of scholars believe, along with Psalm 51, this is a psalm that David writes when it finally like, sinks in the gravity of what he had done, like the evil nature of what he had done, colliding with the fact that God didn't kill him, but actually forgave him. Like at that moment, there is so much like depth of feeling that David experiences that he has to write a song. He has to write a poem about it. And this is it. So let's read it. We'll go to verse 1 and 2. He says, I, I uh, uh, no, he says, how joyful, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I remember one of the first sermons I ever preached when you're a young preacher, the, the church you go to doesn't want to risk having you like, preach blasphemy or something, uh, and so you've got to go out and find churches that are desperate enough to have you speak, and that's what I did. I just did the circuit, mainly of youth groups and like, youth congregations, and I went way out east, Renee and I went out there as a, I don't know, I was young. Anyway, I, I preached this sermon and I mentioned this, I quoted this psalm, and I was talking about just how vile we are as sinners and how beautiful God's grace is, and the, it didn't go well. Uh, it didn't go well because after the sermon, one of the elders came and spoke to me. The pastor was away that week, hence me getting the gig, but the elder said to me, you know, we, we really should have checked with you before you came and preached that sermon. We don't talk about sin here. And, um, and <laughs> uh, but, but, the re- but he said, the reason is because we really want to be as upbeat as we can. Like, we want to be a- as encouraging as we can. And so we don't want to dwell on, like, as you said, the vileness of who we are. And, that. and so to that kind of thinking, David says, wait, what? He says, hang on, but how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Like, that is the place of joy. If you want to find true happiness, if you really want to be upbeat, don't block out the darkness. Like, allow the darkness to give contrast to the light. Then you'll see how good the light is. That's where real joy is. Now, I, I, like, I don't know where you are this morning in terms of your relationship with the Lord, and I know we all go through seasons, right, of... Um, of dryness and of, of feeling distant. But I can tell you, like, without any question, the most peaking, joy-filled moments of my life that are not just happy, as good as happiness is, but they're like movingly joyful. Like just, you almost, you feel like you're going to burst. Those moments are... The moment where I was standing at the front of the church and I saw Renee enter at the back of the church on our wedding day, 
And she was, it was like she was blindingly radiant. I just like nearly choked. Just moved. In the olden days, they would say that was you were moved with transport. That is, you, like you, it took you somewhere. And then there was the birth of my two kids in the midst of complete chaos and devastation and Renee literally dying and being brought back to life. Like even with all of that going on, just overwhelming joy. And then there are the moments where I've, I think, truly, even just for a moment, comprehended God's grace, like the depths of God's grace. I've understood how wretched I am and how loving God is. That's why he says, how joyful. Like, seriously, how joyful, infinitely joyful is the ones whose transgression or sin or brokenness or law-breaking or whatever. Like, how, how joyful is that person who understands the depth of God's love and forgiveness? Tim Keller says that in, in his little commentary on the Psalms, I think they're called the Songs of Jesus or something like that, he says, the happiest people in the world are those who not only know they need to be deeply forgiven, but also have experienced it. That's what I want for each of us in this place this morning. You don't, you're not just confronted with the reality of your vileness and wickedness, but you've experienced God's gracious forgiveness. So, if that's the path to joy, the opposite of it is what comes next. He said, verse 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your, he- your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. The opposite of the joy experience, confession and forgiveness, is pushing it aside, right? Remaining silent, refusing to address it. It's then that our bones become brittle from sheer groaning. Now, if it's true that this is 2 Samuel 11 and 12, this is the Bathsheba thing, then this makes sense because by the time Nathan shows up, the baby that David had with... Bathsheba is born. So this is, we're talking months. For months, David hasn't addressed this sin. It's only when Nathan comes and says, you are that man, that it hits him. So for months, he's kept silent, and it's been eating him up. This failure to acknowledge obvious, like the most breathtakingly obvious sin. It's interesting in Psalm 51 when he talks about this sin, he, he, he pretty much uses all of the words in Hebrew for sin. He, t- he finally gets it. And he says, the worst thing of all was my blasphemy against God. Notwithstanding the rape and the murder, like the worst thing I've done in all of this is blaspheme against God. So he gets it, but it takes months. And in the meantime, he is slowly being eaten up by the weight of his guilt and his shame. 
until finally, verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover or did not conceal my iniquity, right, my sin. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. After months of groaning, he finally comes to his senses as the prophet of God wakes him up to the reality, which is, I I mean, I'm no Nathan, but I think that's what God is trying to do with us this morning. And, And you are fully free to harden your heart right now and to refuse, refuse to be convicted or, and therefore go on groaning, or you can do as David did, even in the midst of his stupidity, he was wise enough to respond to the conviction of God. Nathan was a good prophet of conviction, but he's got nothing on the Holy Spirit who is here, present, wanting to speak to each one of us. So he comes around and he acknowledges and he uncovers and unconceals his sin and he receives forgiveness and experiences deep joy. So if that's the pattern of things, if that's just the economy of God and how it works, and we have this invitation to move from shame and guilt and groaning and brittle bones into deep joy, then why the hell do we constantly resist? Why do we cover ourselves, like Adam and Eve in the garden, from the very beginning, hiding from God, covering their nakedness. Why do we do this? I think what's at the bottom of our resistance is our our three great enemies. In this life, three great opponents of holiness and godliness and sanctification. Three great enemies of living Christ-like lives. Our enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I just want to try and reveal something about how each of these enemies is at work, even now, as God is trying to speak to us and convict us and call us into joy. So, first of all, when it comes to the world, this is the, the pervasive kind of philosophy of the world, the way that the world thinks and works and gets reinforced in us and through us, through advertising and marketing and social media and everything around us. Uh, it gets reinforced, well, we, we kind of reference this in my experience as a kid preaching at church, it's just this idea that um, it's unhealthy to dwell on what's wrong with us. It's unhealthy. You read a lot now today about the, the health benefits of forgiving people. That's sort of broadly acknowledged now that, well, yeah, actually, you know, rather than carrying around a grudge, it's better for you psychologically to forgive people. 
but we don't get the other half of it near so much, that it's actually the way of health, the way of joy to dwell on your own brokenness. This is probably, I don't know, this is my, my take on it. There, there was this huge movement, massive, very strong movement about 20 or 30 years ago, the self-esteem movement. The idea was we will be happy, fulfilled, um, flourishing people if we boost our self-esteem. Feel good about yourself. It's the power of positive thinking, right? Um, an utter failure from start to finish. It wasn't until recently that I read actually a secular psychology book that actually acknowledged this, the failure of that attempt to get us to feel better about ourselves. And his point was that, I mean, if, you, if the only way you can be happy is by feeling good about yourself, then you will never, you'll never feel good enough about yourself. There's, all, there's always going to be something that is nagging you at the back of your mind that where you failed. There's always going to be reason, evidence from within and from without for why you're not as good as you want to think you are. So you're going to fail from the beginning. But this kind of, you know, this thought lingers in our minds that if I, if I confront my badness, then I will feel bad and feeling bad is wrong and so therefore I will not confront my badness. The path to joy that he talks about here is not about self-esteem. It's not about self-righteousness. It's actually about going the other way, acknowledging just how far short we fall from Jesus, the perfection of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. And then the good news of the gospel is that because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we have his righteousness. It's not something I have to work up to. It's not something that I have to convince myself of in my mind and make sure I do enough good things to earn. I have it by grace, in spite of what I deserve. And all of God's people said, Amen. That's good news. There's an Anglican vicar of a couple hundred years ago, maybe a hundred years, I don't know, Charles Simeon, who um, had this, this image of a ship, one of those tall ships. Have you ever seen one of those, big, like the Endeavour? Um, and he said, the, the wind of God's grace in the sails has to be balanced by the ballast of, of self repudiation. The, the wind of God's grace will knock me over if I don't balance it with the understanding of just how far I have fallen from who I should be. Those two things don't work against each other. They work in tandem, in partnership. That's how the ship sails. So, at the end of this sermon, when I invite you into this corporate confession that we say regularly together, you need to get both parts of it. 
the acknowledgement of my failure and the assurance of God's forgiveness. Can't have one without the other. So there's some some of the reason why I think the world prevents us from coming to the truth before God, confessing sin. What about flesh? Our flesh, when the Bible talks about our flesh, it's not, let me be really clear, it's not that this meat on my bones is bad. That's That's a platonic idea that, isn't, has no place in the Bible. The idea that this is all bad, but one day we'll be in heaven where we won't have a body and it will be good, and, you know, like desires that I have are bad, and, but in heaven are... That is nonsense, all right? That's not the Bible's view. The Bible's view is this meat is good meat. God created it and said, that's really good. He created the whole world and said, that's really good. So the flesh doesn't refer to oh, this dirty body that I've got. The flesh is myself apart from redemption in the Lord Jesus. The way I was before he saved me and that which still lingers within me. He has saved me. He's given me his spirit to dwell within me. I am a new creation, but there is fleshliness that lingers, that won't be fully done away with until I have a resurrection body. And so, when it comes to the flesh, this is what you, you I mean, when you think about the, our sort of um, pervasive sins, prevailing sins, like pride. Pride is of the flesh. And pride prevents us, doesn't it? Pride prevents us from coming with open hands, carrying with us nothing but our sin to the throne of grace. Pride prevents us. Pride wants us to go with as much stuff as we can, accumulated, I don't know, badges of good church boy and church girlness. I want to go to the throne with all the, my emblems of how good I am, what I've achieved. That's what pride, that's what the flesh does to us. That's if we go at all. More often, it just keeps us as far away from the throne of grace as we can. You know why? Because in our flesh, our worth as a person is contingent on how right we are. This is why you argue with your wife or husband constantly and try and win. Because your worth, your worthiness is based on how right you are. This is in spite of all the evidence against it, right? You don't need your wife or anyone else to tell you how bad you are. You know, just look within you. It's really easy to see, even through the lenses of pride. I would tell you this morning, I was riding up the hill um, below the lake on the way to to work this morning, and as I was riding up, someone pulled out in front of me, like right in front of me. I nearly smashed into their car. And it was really apologetic, like waving the window, sorry. And then someone pulled out in front of him literally 20 metres up the road, and he was on the horn immediately. That's pride. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for giving me the sermon illustration, because I was... That's pride. I am righteous, and the more I can 
augment my righteousness, my rightness, it balances out my crappiness. If I can be really angry at that guy for cutting me off, then I'll feel better about me cutting that guy off. If my worth is contingent on my rightness, then I will never come to God with my sin because it's an admission that I am worth less. But if you believe what the Bible says about you, that you are of absolutely infinite worth irrespective of anything you have ever done. If you are of infinite worth simply because you're made in the image of God, then you can come freely. You can admit wrong to God and to one another freely. I can come to you and say, I'm so sorry that I offended you in that way. And it doesn't diminish my worth. This is so key. We sat down with India, Renee and I, the other day, and we, were just, we, we just said to her, and just, this is a good little way to do it, uh, we, we just said to her, India, um, how much is a baby worth, like a newborn baby? Out of 10, if 10 is the most worth, how much is a, like an innocent little, and she was like, 10. And then we said, so how much are you worth? And this happened to be just in light of some issues that we were discussing, some behavioural issues. And she was like, I don't know, maybe four. And we're like, no, it's ten. It's ten when you're good and it's ten when you're bad. You are made in the image and likeness of God. As I was writing up here today, I passed, this is another good sermon illustration, you've got to keep your eyes open, you see stuff everywhere. I, I went past one guy, he looked like he hadn't slept in six weeks just looked terrible and was going through the bin just down there at the corner of the lake, going through the bin with a bag. And then as I passed him, kind of like holding my breath, I passed this really attractive, put-together mum, you know, had kids in the pram, the kids weren't crying, they were like drinking green juice or something, you know, terrible, tasting terrible but good for you and she was in shape and just like... and. I'm instantly drawn to her and repelled by him. But that's not a biblical way of seeing people. The biblical worldview and the way that God sees us is that both are infinitely valuable. What they have done in their lives to get to the place where they are does not diminish their worth in any way. And therefore, even the, 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 the homeless man or the successful woman can come to God with their sins because neither one of them have earned their place or their favour. We can be free. We can freely acknowledge. The next time your wife comes to you and says, you know what you did? You can say, I don't know. could be anything. What have I done this time? And not in a snarky way, just in a free way. What have I done this time? I'm sure I'm going to fall short constantly. Thanks be to God, my worth isn't bound up in how good I am. Easy to say. But we're called to live it. And we've got good reason to live it. 
know, this is where Paul quotes this psalm. He, he, he quotes this psalm in Romans 4. And out of all of the 150 psalms that he could choose, right when he's talking about the fact that we've saved by grace and not by works, he quotes this psalm. So in Romans 4 he says, The one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Like he's given it as a gift, just through belief, not through works. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. He he quotes him from Psalm 32. Blessed is just another way of translating joyful. So, when Paul's trying to think of an illustration of how good it is to be saved by grace, this is where it goes. This is the foundation for us, to be able to confidently walk to the throne of grace, throw ourselves on the mercy of God, and receive free and full forgiveness. This is the foundation. There's a beautiful illustration of this, both of what God wants us to do this morning and of the danger, the real, eternal danger of following the flesh rather than the spirit. It's in this parable that he tells. Well, anyway, let me read it to you. You'll be familiar with it. It's from Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's what the flesh does. That they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men, he says, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One a homeless guy the other an attractive put-together woman. Reverse that. One a Pharisee, someone who could be proud in what they've achieved and the life that they've lived, committed to God's word and God's law and God's plan for the universe. The other a tax collector, a betrayer, scum of the earth. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, I can't read this without getting a little bit emotional about it. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the devil, 
The devil loves this stuff. The devil loves the opportunity presented to him this morning. For each one of us here, he has this great opportunity. What the devil wants for you this morning, speaking on behalf of the devil, he wants for you verse 3. He wants this to be your life verse. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from groaning all day long. That would, that would just, the devil would love that for you. That's his kind of eternal plan for you. Brittle bones, groaning all day long. And so, when you fall and you sin against God, then he is right there in that moment. He, he loves to take the initiative in that moment and speak to you in the moment. And this is what you hear from, from your enemy, the devil. He says things like, oh boy, again? You did that again? Don't, whatever you do, don't go to God right now. He is really fed up with you. He was bearing with you up until now, but this, this, is, this has put you over the edge. He is now disgusted with you. Give it some time. Just give it some time. And so we do, because of our shame, we give it some time. And then a little more time. And then time goes on, and like David, nine months, ten months have passed, and we are withering, spiritually withering like someone caught out under the sun in the middle of the desert. And that, for your enemy, the devil, is a great success. Devil willing, Nathan doesn't show up, or nobody preaches from Psalm 32, or there isn't any conviction of the Spirit, and you go on withering forever. The devil hates you. He hates your guts. Hates you more than anyone you've ever met or ever will. And his plan for you is verse 3. Stuck on verse 3. David knows what it's like to be stuck on verse 3. And so he says, God, no. Like, for the sake of all that is holy, don't go down that path. Instead, verse 6, therefore, here's the, here's the lesson, right? This is a mascal. Here's the, here's the take-home lesson. Here's what you need to write down in your notes. But write this on your heart. He says, verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is faithful, right? If you are here this morning, you're following Jesus, you have the Spirit dwelling within you, you are seeking after holiness. Let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. Immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him, he says. Nothing can threaten your soul 
if in the moment of transgression you immediately come to the Lord for forgiveness. It's such a joke that I'm telling you this. I feel so compromised. And then I remember my worth is not contingent on my goodness and so I'm relieved of the burden and I can share with you freely. Like just yesterday, we were on our way in the car, the four of us, Smiths, on our way to something and it just... It hit me that whole week before, nearly a week before, the Sunday before, I had brutally transgressed against my family. I really lost it with them on a Sunday afternoon. I got angry and I left them. I deserted them for four hours with my phone turned off just to make them more worried about me and more distressed. Just a terrible way to treat people that you love so far short of the lofty standard I have for myself as a father and a husband and a man. And it took me all week, all week I was silent. My bones were getting brittle and I was groaning under the weight of that grief and sin and shame. And it took me until yesterday afternoon to say, I'm really sorry. Acknowledge my transgressions like expose myself in all of my blackness, brokenness, darkness. And what did I receive? Free, free forgiveness, grace. We forgive you. We love you. We Let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately, he says. I think one of the greatest gauges of spiritual maturity is not how many psalms you have memorized, though that would be amazing, but actually one of the best indicators, one of the best KPIs for spiritual maturity is how quickly you run to the throne of grace when your, your sins are exposed when you fall again how quickly do you run to the mercy of Jesus how quickly do you plunge yourself into the blood that cleanses you from sin I want to encourage you to do it now like right now in, in the moment I feel like we need to we need to harness the moment. If God has been speaking to you through his word and through any, any, anything that I've said, I want to invite you into this corporate confession. Confession, repentance, forgiveness. Yes, it happens privately. Yes, it happens in the family. And yes, it happens corporately in God's body, his church. 
So I'm going to invite you to say these words with me only, only if you want to receive grace and forgiveness. If you're not there yet, then just don't say these words. It would be a lie. David says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is covered or forgiven, sin is covered. Joyful is the person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. No trying to trick God, no trying to trick anyone else. Just free and open, acknowledging who we are and who he is. So, I encourage you to join with me and just remember one of Jesus' best friends, John, this is what he says. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so then knowing the goodness of God and our failure to respond with love and obedience, let us confess our sins, saying altogether, God of all mercy, we humbly admit that we need your help. We have wandered from your way. We have sinned in thought, word and deed and failed to do what is right. You alone can save us. Have mercy on us. Wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. Bring forth in us the fruit of your spirit that we may live in the new life of your glory. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. God is slow to anger, <laughs> full of compassion. He forgives all who humbly repent and trust in his Son as Saviour and Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear and receive the good news of the gospel. In Christ Jesus, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God. I'm going to encourage you to stand up now and respond to God's grace, mercy, compassion, forgiveness. Respond with songs of praise. Um, if during this time you would like to pray with someone, perhaps you don't feel you're at the point now where you can go to your own, on your own to the throne of grace, maybe you want to pray with someone, uh, either on those lines, forgiveness, confession, or about anything else. We'll have a couple of people just out in the foyer if you want to come and pray during this uh, time of praise.